being that I hadn't met Steve before this morning, I had to ask him all of the questions. Uh-oh. <laughs> because I'm going, I've been around the conference a long time and I hadn't seen you, so I thought, okay, where did you come from? And he told me that he is a retired chaplain, which is the first thing I always ask him because of different ministers that I've known. I go, so what do you, now that you're retired, what are you going to do? <laughs> Pretty much shows. He's here. He's going to start speaking. So, <laughs> amen. <laughs> so, Steve, whereabouts are you, you? You told us that you grew up around Spokane. Mm -hmm. And so, tiny bit of background. Grew up on a farm. I just told the children. Uh -huh. And uh, so for the past 15 years, I've been chaplain of Wheatland Village, which is a uh, retirement settlement, ret retirement home, we could call it. About 325, 350 residents. So that's a pretty sizable uh, facility and about 135 staff. Mm -hmm. So a very high percentage of staff. So we've been there for 15 years as chaplain. And that is a really obviously we enjoyed it. Yes. It was uh, great. My wife Betty is here in the back <laughs> and uh, she was my right hand person and my helper. So, I, I was so now we're as of November 1, we're retired. Thanksgiving Day, we moved to our son's place in Shelton, out of Shelton, 10 miles in the country. So that's where we're gonna live out our days, as far as we know. All right. Well, we're, we're in a motor home till our house gets built. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? <laughs> we, we have a couple that's just transitioned and they're smiling. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, and, and the part I didn't tell you when you said you're in a retirement community, I'm maintenance for 106 bed assisted living. So, oh. we do have a little bit of commonality. Yes, we and, do. and I'm sure you were there for 15 years, the re same reason why I've been there for 11 is the residence. Mm -hmm. So, very so, fulfilling work. Yes. So, with that, I will give the floor to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a privilege to, uh, to get to come. I've, I've heard of this city, of course, all my life, but never, ever been here before. So uh, we're excited to have the interesting drive from Shelton down here today. And uh, a little over two hours, I think it was. So, we're happy to be here. We're privileged to be able to share a reminder of the love of God with you today. And uh, I would like to just have a word of prayer as we begin. Almighty Father, again, we want to petition your blessing that as we worship together, as we review the love of Jesus, your love for us. Father, may we all see you, not me, but the beauty of Jesus and his love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, 
2024 is upon us. We're at the threshold of a new year. And uh, it's a time of new beginnings, a, a time of resolutions, a time of starting over. And for some people, however, it's, it's not a good time as they look back over the past year. We're encouraged to compare, as followers of Jesus, the past year and make decisions and goals to become more like him in the future throughout the coming year. But for some, as they look back over the past year, it's a year of regret. As we look at the sins and bad choices we've made, some people decide it's more than God can forgive, and they go on hopelessly. But according to Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and are short of God's glory, of his goal for us. All of us are in need of forgiveness. And so all of us look back over the year and say, I want to grow. I want to be more like Christ. I'm excited how God has blessed us over the past year. Distinct, distinct ways that he has intervened and answered our prayers. And yet our goal for the next year, we want to be closer, to know him more intimately. So as some look over the past year, they may have regret. Our lives have not been perfect. As he just said a few minutes ago, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. Except through Jesus. And so as we look over the coming year, I want to urge us to look at a wonderful story that I want to review with you today. A very familiar story, but I want to review it with you today because I love the depth, the, the insight into the nature of God and his love that this story shares and the hope that it gives to us sinners. So I want to look with you at a, one of my favorite stories that John tells about the life of Jesus and his ministry when he went and, uh, on purpose, and met with a lady at the well, a Samaritan woman. And you remember this story begins with very simple uh, explanation that Jesus needed to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee, back up towards home. Now, it says he went, had to go through Samaria, but of course, you probably know he didn't have to. There were two other routes. He could have gone over to the Mediterranean Sea and gone up that route and joined the King's Highway into Galilee, or he could have gone down to Jericho by the river and gone up the river route and avoided having to confront the people of Samaria. Actually, most people went those other routes. Most Jews did not use the route Jesus was taking. Now, the route that Jesus chose was about 70 miles. You know, that's a lot of walking. 70 miles, two and a half days walk probably, maybe three days walk, knowing that he probably stopped and taught along the way. And so he 
is going straight up into and through Samaria. Very familiar uh, story because Jesus did not go there accidentally. And so we're familiar with his story because of what happened there. So let's look at this here. And John 4, 4 starts it out by saying that he went and made a choice to go there. Now, as I said, most people go their alternate routes so they could avoid the Samaritan people. That was twice as far. It doubled the distance to go either of the other two ways. But they were willing to avoid these people that they called dogs. They hated these people. But Jesus had to go that way, it says. Why? He had to go that way because he was on a mission. Not only was there a Samaritan woman and village to save, but this was to be the first major lesson for the disciples about God's acceptance of Gentiles, of non-Jews. What a test it must have been for them as they were to experience for the next couple of days. Well, as you probably know, this woman came to the well alone in the middle of the day. Well, this was unusual and um, maybe potentially dangerous for a woman to walk out there alone. And of course, most of the women came in the morning together or in the cool of the evening together. There was safety in the crowd coming together. And also it was kind of a social event where they could visit together. And so the fact that she comes alone, we have always heard hints that her reputation was not good. Her checkered back, her checkered background, her past was known by these ladies and apparently she felt ostracized by them, and so she comes alone when no other woman would be coming. In the, eve, in the heat of the day. Well, the conversation, you recall, begins with Jesus saying, would you give me a drink? Sounds simple in our society, but it was not there. But he is tired. He's thirsty, he's walked 70 miles to be there, and so he's tired and he's thirsty, and she has the water that he needs. He's thirsty and he knows it. She's thirsty but doesn't know it. She has the water he needs, but he has the water she needs. He just doesn't know it yet. Well, in his approach, we see that the, the great heart of our Lord Jesus is accepting of anyone. It doesn't matter to him that other people wouldn't go th through Samaria, that other people wouldn't talk to this woman or be identified with her. He demonstrated for us that God welcomes anyone, whatever their background, whatever their mistakes of the past, whatever has transpired the past year. Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to 
Seek and to save whom? The lost. The lost. So this story in John 4 is all about God's grace and the accessibility of that grace to everyone. Anyone just for the asking. Well, what happens in this chapter looks like an accident. I grew up thinking, as I heard this story, oh, Jesus just happened along the road, and she came to the well, and it was accidental. Oh, it was nothing of the sort. Jesus and the Father had this all planned. This was all set up because she was ready. Her heart was open. And it reminds us that he shuns shuns no one. And so he deliberately goes there to meet this lady. John 4, 9 to 15. Let's pick up the story there where Jesus asks, give me a drink. So the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Ah, her curiosity is beginning to awaken here. And so that's why Jesus approached her this way. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob and who gave this well to us and who drank from it himself as did his sons, his flocks, and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now he really has her attention. But she's still thinking of the physical water. And so she responds with, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. There are at least three surprises in this little, these few verses, this little engagement with this lady. The first one is that a Jew would talk to a Samaritan, any Samaritan, especially a Samaritan woman. Because secondly, a Jewish man would never speak to any woman in public that was not his relation. So for him to come and to strike up conversation and to ask a favor was unheard of. She was no relation. Thirdly, that a Jew would drink from a Samaritan's cup or vessel, as the case might be. You know, it's kind of interesting. It never really reveals that Jesus ever got a drink. Did you notice that? It never does say, oh, yes, here, have a drink. We don't know. She's so curious, she forgets the water. So third, a Jew would never drink from a Samaritan's cup or vessel, and so when the woman saw Jesus, she knew this was a Jew. And that's why she's shocked. 
that he would ask for water from her. She knew that he was a stranger. By his dress showed that he was a Jew. And as soon as he spoke, his accent would have revealed that he was not a Samaritan but a Jew. You see, in the first century, it was almost unheard of for a Jewish man to speak to any unrelated woman in public, much less a Samaritan, as I said. And to ask for a drink of water was very, very unusual because the rabbis taught that it was a sin for a Jew to touch the cup or vessel of a Samaritan. Not just to drink from it, but to touch it was a sin. So Jesus offers her living water. Did you notice that when he says, I would have given, he would have given you living water, speaking in the third uh, sense, he would have given you living water. He doesn't explain what it is. He's, he's rather deliberately ambiguous to create her curiosity. He is trying to incite her curiosity to prepare her for his identity when he tells her who he is. <clears throat> and he doesn't want to do it in such a way as to frighten her because his openness would easily frighten a Jewish a Samaritan woman, maybe a Jewish woman too. So he is leading her step by step into salvation, into a relationship with him, leading her to saving faith. First, he leads her into curiosity and seeing her need, which he's about to do. As she develops curiosity, he develops it by telling her what her need is, and then he offers her something that could change her life and will probably change her life. He's not even offering her to quench her thirst. Thank you, thank you. You could tell my voice is uh, going. He doesn't even offer her to quench her thirst. He offers her water that will permanently eliminate her thirst altogether. Of course, he's speaking of the spiritual. Thank you for the drink. I am again and again struck by the fact that Jesus, a couple of times, comes back to this question of his identity. If you knew who I am, type of thing, then you would act. So he comes back to his identity. If you knew my true identity, you would ask and I would give you water that leads to eternal life. A gushing spring to your heart. It's interesting to me because this issue of the identity of Christ was not only important to her, but the identity of Christ is important to you and me. His identity is why he qualifies to die for us and to pay for our sins. As he's going to tell her, and we'll see in just a moment. 
So it's important for us today. And so the question comes to me, and I pass it on. Do you really know him? Really know his identity? Really know who he is personally? That's my need, is to know him more and more personally as each day goes by. So in these verses, we see the simplicity of salvation. In the 10th verse, Jesus says, you would have asked and I would have given. That sounds pretty simple. Ask for salvation and I will give it. Isn't that what salvation is all about? You ask for the water of life and his Holy Spirit and he gives us salvation in response. It's asking God to save you and receiving salvation in return. So his statement to her applies to you and me as well. So think about it. Heaven is as available to you as asking, as a question, as an invitation. All we have to do is ask, he told her. What an amazing thought that is. To ask for salvation and then cooperate with his spirit as he works to change our lives. Grace and salvation are yours and mine just for the asking. Well, we've all been thirsty at times, but he's talking about a thirst that is spiritual. Do we have a spiritual thirst? Real thirsty spiritually? You see, she didn't realize that she was spiritually thirsty. She didn't see her need until he revealed it to her. She didn't let herself think about her need. But the same can be true of us. Do we really recognize our need? You see, if we're not taking time every day to become more and more intimately acquainted with Jesus, time to read his word and to talk with him, then we are not intimately acquainted with him. It's interesting. Uh, there's a little book written by Morris Venden titled Five-Day Plan to Know God. Maybe you've read it. And uh, in it, he makes a statement that really fascinated me. He said, if you're not taking time every day to get acquainted with God, you're a legalist. Well, now that puzzled me. I'm not a legalist. Oh, yes, you are. He says, because if, you're not, if you are going day by day without building a love relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are depending upon your works for salvation instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the need that she has, is to know who he's, she's talking to and then surrender her heart to God. Now in verse 15, the woman says, okay, I'm convinced, give me this water. But she didn't really understand what he meant, and she didn't understand actually what her need was. She thought it would be wonderful not to have to come there and draw water in the heat of the day. But her heart is ready. So now comes the confrontation. 
You see, sometimes Jesus has to confront us directly because gentle persuasion doesn't always get our attention. It doesn't always hold our attention. And so he has to have a confrontation. And so now the confrontation comes here in verses 16 to 18 of John 4. Only God can know when it's time for this confrontation. Only God can know whether the confrontation will soften her heart or harden it as it did Pharaoh's heart. But he knows she is ready. And so he says in verse 16, Go call your husband and come back. Ah, he's leading to a confrontation. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus says, you are right. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. One, five, one, two, five. How many husbands she had is immaterial to Jesus. He goes right past that. He, he still offers her grace. He still cares about her. He still wants her salvation. Her past is what's significant. Her few possible future is what is significant to Jesus. So now, on one level, it sounds like Jesus is being a bit insensitive. Why bring up her past? Oh, that was important to do. Was he trying to embarrass her? No. His instruction to call her husband, of course it made her uncomfortable and she doesn't want to reveal the details. So she just says, I have no husband. Now, of course, this is true, but it isn't the whole story. She knows it isn't the whole story. What she doesn't know is that Jesus knows it isn't the whole story. And so he's going to reveal some more of the story to her, to her shock and surprise. Now, his knowing this must have shocked her when he said all of this. What a shock. Something she'd kind of tried to hide. And as I thought about this, I wondered, how could a woman at that culture have had five husbands? Well, did they all die? Mm, unlikely. Had she been divorced five times? More likely. Had there been promiscuity involved? Very likely. Certainly she is currently living in a sinful relationship with a man outside of marriage. But God loves her still. And so in a sense, these words of Jesus almost sounds like a slap in the face. And yet, as I said, they're very important. It was the kindest, most loving thing he could have done for her. There's an important spiritual principle at work here. The fact that without conviction, there cannot be conversion. Without conviction, 
there cannot be repentance. Without repentance, there cannot be confession. Without confession, there cannot be conversion. It was all tied together. This was the first step. She needed this confrontation. She needed to be reminded of her need. I find it unpleasant to think about my needs, about my mistakes and my sins, and yet it's important that we do this. God sees behind our masks. He sees who we really are. And when we're assured through this story that he loves us anyway, we become more willing to look at our past and our mistakes. So is Jesus being cruel by trying to carve into her past? Well, no, not any more than a, a physician is cruel when he recommends and performs surgery. Will a surgery lead to pain? No doubt. But the pain is much better than having to have the alternative of death or even discomfort and more pain. I, uh, I remember in Alaska at junior camp, we were building a, uh, I was director of the junior camp in, in uh, Wrangell, Alaska. It's out in an island, Bank Island. And we were building a gymnasium. And so we were using a, uh, the bucket on a backhoe to move units of lumber off of a barge. And as usual, it was raining. You're familiar with rain. As usual, it was raining, and the plastic cover over this unit of lumber was very slippery. And as I was trying to stand on it to unhook the chain, I had to grab the hydraulics up here for a balance. And then I went like this to let the let the hydraulics down to release the chain. I needed more slack. And the bar came down on my fingers. I still have them. It's a miracle. It should have clipped my fingers right off. That steel bar came right down against the back of the bucket, and my finger was the, wrapped around that bar. Well... That's a long story, but let me just say that it didn't heal. Even though stitches were given, weeks went by, and, it, and the seam healed where it had been burst open by being smashed, but at the knuckle, the inside knuckle, it didn't heal. Finally, I went to a doctor there in Ketchikan, and uh, he said, oh, I need to cut it. And I said, it's already cut. He says, no, I need to cut it. He says, that's never going to heal. You're going to deal with that little spot all your life. Unless I cut it, I will intersect the cut that you have with another cut. And as it heals, it'll heal the cut you already have. Well, it doesn't make sense to me yet. I don't understand it. But it worked. Worked perfectly. He made a cut, and the whole thing healed. Ah, I've got scars, but marvelous. 
He said, I have to hurt you to make you well, essentially. And that's what he had to do for this lady. He had to bring to her attention her need. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We all need healing. So just as a surgeon must sometimes seem to hurt us in order to heal us, likewise the great physician of souls has to wound us with the truth about ourselves so that we will surrender to him. By asking about her husband, she exposes this woman's need. A lifelong search to fill the void in her heart. You remember the famous statement made by Pascal, that famous theologian, when he said that in each one of us is a God-shaped vacuum. A God-shaped vacuum within every human heart which only God can fill. Hmm. No relationships, no experience in this world can save us and fill that hole except knowing Jesus and let him fill it. So I want to pause at this point and ask a question. Does this woman know Jesus' past? Obviously. Does he love her? Yes. He loves her. How amazing to think that he knows her and yet loves her. I love the song that says, the one who knows me best loves me most. That's true for you too. The one who knows you best loves you most. This story is very reassuring to me. I love it. Well, that's it. We need to hurry on. Time is flying. Uh, you remember that she didn't like being uncomfortable, and so she's, she tries a diversion technique and starts going into theology. And we won't go into that except to say that in verses 25 and 26, she says, I know the Messiah will come, and when he does, he will teach us all things. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Bold statement. Now she knows. Now she's on the verge of belief. Now it's clear to this woman who this unusual man is. And it reveals to us that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone. He's showing her that salvation is not about going to the right mountain. It's about going to the right person, Jesus Christ. So the truth is dawning on her. She has heard that the Messiah would come, and now his amazing statement says he is the one. But I've got to share with you the unique way in which he announces this to her. Because in the Greek... He says, he doesn't say like it is written in most translations. He says, actually, 
the one who speaks to you, I am. The one who speaks to you, I am. The Greek is ego eimi. Ego eimi means I, I am. It doubles it to an emphasis. It's the Greek equivalent of I am the I am. So he's announcing to her that he is the same God that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. What an amazing revelation we have here just to know he made that statement. He used that same formula, incidentally, when he's walking on the water, calling to the disciples, don't fear, it is I am. He does this several times. Well, no doubt this woman is blown away. She comes in the middle of the day for some physical water, and instead she meets the water of life face to face. What a great story this is. Well, then at that point, the disciples come, and she leaves her water jug and runs to town and tells the people. What did she say? Leaving her water jug, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. That's verses 27 to 30. So this woman has been converted. Her heart has been changed. And she forgets all about water. Now salvation, the water of life, is on her heart. And her invitation to the people to Sychar, did you notice she didn't say, hey, you got to believe what I say now. She said, more gentle, come, see for yourself. And that's the invitation that we give as we share God's love with others. So we come to the end of the story here in verses 39 to 42, where the Samaritans come out from the village, meet Jesus, and invite him to stay. And he stays two days. I have to laugh when I think of how the disciples must have, have suffered through that. You know, they were never even to touch a vessel. And now here they are living with Samaritans. It must have been torture for them. But that's what Jesus needed them to see. God loves and expects, accepts anyone who will accept him and give their lives to him. The grace the salvation of Jesus is free to you and me as well. And so our closing question is, do you know him? Will you ask him for living water day by day to fill your life? That's our need and my prayer today. Let me just summarize the five points we've hit on. No one is too sinful to be saved. No one is so lost that the Lord cannot find him. He went 70 miles to find her. No one can be saved without facing his sinful past. No one who faces his sinful past will be turned away by Jesus. And no one who meets Jesus will ever be the same.
never. So as we face the new year, let's remember that Jesus is ready to give us of his living water, of his grace and his Holy Spirit. And he's eager to forgive us. He offers us a wellspring of grace. May God bless us as we face the new year and follow him. Father in heaven, how we need your grace. Bless us now, we pray. How to apply the lessons of Jesus' example here. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand and sing this beautiful hymn of consecration? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
Almighty Father, you have heard our prayer in this song. Please fill us. Where we need conviction, touch our hearts. Where we need joy, Lord, bring the joy of your salvation. Bless us as we leave this worship hour in the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.